Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review, the New Statesman's international news podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Bruno Masayas, the former Europe Minister for Portugal, author of multiple books, and most importantly, also my colleague here at The New Statesman, where he is a roving foreign affairs correspondent. We'll discuss his recent interview with China's ambassador to the EU and whether China and Europe could be headed for a trade war. Bruno, thanks for joining me. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Katie. Great to be here. So you recently sat down with Fu Zong, China's ambassador to the EU, for a wide-ranging interview. You started by asking him about the war in Ukraine and whether China is prepared to use the leverage it now has over Russia to push it to withdraw its troops from Ukraine. What did he tell you? Were you able to get a clear answer from him on that? Not entirely clear. You can tell that China is not entirely aligned with Russia on the war. I think they're worried about some of the consequences of the war. It's put China in a difficult position because on the one hand, they don't want to lose their relationship, strategic relationship with Russia, which is important. Imagine a world where Russia is suddenly, after Putin, aligned with the West and putting pressure on China together with the West on commodities, on exports, on energy exports. This is a nightmare for Beijing. So they don't want that. But on the other hand, they don't want to lose Europe. This is very clear and it's relatively new. China, the ambassador, you could see in our conversation after the interview, is fully committed to, let us say, saving Europe. The question now in Beijing is who lost Europe or who is going to lose Europe? And Xi Jinping clearly came out of COVID and the party Congress with one priority to produce a split between Europe and the US and to preserve relations with Europe. So in that sense, the war in Ukraine is actually very inconvenient. I disagree with those who think China is celebrating the war. It's very inconvenient, put China in a difficult position. And so they're trying to maneuver and thread a very thin line where they don't lose Russia and they don't lose Europe. It's Eurasian geopolitics on a grand scale. And from the EU officials and the diplomats that, that you talk to, is China managing that balance successfully or is there a growing sense that China has to some extent chosen sides? There is a clear sense in the corridors in Brussels that China has chosen Russia's side. 
ambassador denies. I'm sure every Chinese official is going to deny that. I believe they are correcting the trajectory. The, six, the first six months, I think, were pretty disastrous. I was interested, for example, that I had interviewed Chinese officials before, and they tried to publish the interview, as they always do in Chinese and in China, with some of the independent outlets, and they couldn't in interviews that I've done before. Well, here is quite the opposite. The interview was all over Chinese media, in Mandarin and in English. And even with my, what I thought, inconvenient and difficult question on the five principles of peaceful coexistence affirmed by Zhou Enlai and in, in the Chinese constitution and whether they are contradictory with their position on Ukraine. And all this was quickly translated. So I, I sense a shift of direction where I think China is trying to correct a little bit. They probably now think they went a little bit too far on Russia's side and trying to get back to the middle, let us say, to the middle. How does Ambassador Fu try to square that circle of, on the one hand, as you point out, this very important principle of peaceful coexistence, territorial integrity, and yet this very clear aggression against Ukraine by Russia? Principles are what they are. They are valid most of the time. But we are in a geopolitical tense environment where China thinks and feels it's fighting for survival at least the survival of their big geopolitical project of becoming a superpower. They feel under pressure from the US and when countries are in this position, not just China, but pretty much every country, principles take a second place. So I think that's that's what's happening. I, I like to pressure the ambassador and the Chinese officials on the question of principles, but we have to be realistic that they can only go so far. You have also been on the other side of this as a politician. I'd be really interested to know what you make of Fu's responses and how he's trying to pull off, on the one hand, instructions from his own government in Beijing, and on the other, trying to manage and develop these relationships on the ground in Brussels. Right. First of all, the interview, very carefully rehearsed. As you say, I'm a former politician, and I would be slightly worried about this interview after what happened to his colleague and Ambassador Liu in, in Paris. And so he prepared it very well. He has a big team. I'm sure they rehearsed it. And I think he came out well, just repeated the speaking points when the question got too difficult to address directly. On the policy substance, I think, I think he's doing a good job in Brussels. People praise his kind of more conciliatory tone, softer tone. Perhaps the wolf warrior diplomacy that was so triumphant at the beginning of COVID and even a year before, it's being replaced by a different style. So I think that's happening, but there's a problem for him. And as a foreign politician, I understand this and having dealt with diplomats, the EU officials are telling them that what's coming next week with these sanctions against the Chinese companies, it's not really that big a deal. They are not really sanctions. That's just what I'm hearing from the officials in Brussels. But on the other hand, his job as an ambassador is not to convey back to Beijing explanations. His job as an ambassador, that's what he gets paid for, is to get results. So you could see he's under pressure, which he enjoys, but he's under pressure to deliver next week by stopping these sanctions. Now, I think he's going to be unsuccessful because my latest conversations today is that the sanctions, a little surprisingly to me, I didn't entirely expect it. The sanctions against the Chinese companies are really going to go through next week. That will be later this week by the time that this exactly. podcast goes out. Exactly. So what can you tell us about what to expect from that sanctions package? I believe it's uh, the meeting of the EU ambassadors is on June 7th. 
is that Tuesday, Wednesday around that, right? And uh, to all indications, the decision has been made and it's going to happen. Eight Chinese companies are accused or suspect of circumventing EU sanctions against Russia. So basically what they do is they've been created very recently. They are to some extent shell companies of some kind. They import electronic components from Europe and immediately re-export those components to Russia. So obviously the EU cannot accept this. He would render the sanctions against Russia void and ineffective. So the EU is going to determine that these Chinese companies are going to go into a list, Annex 3, and they are now barred from importing those components. I don't know how effective this is because other companies could be created for the same purpose. Politically, it is a bit of an earthquake for the EU, not just the US, to sanction, to create a list. The ambassador is very worried and concerned about the image that it conveys that there's a list of Chinese companies that are accused of circumventing and voiding EU sanctions. It is a, Politically, it is a big moment, actually. And what do you anticipate, given your conversation with Ambassador Fu, about what Beijing's response might be? I asked him on and off the record if I could <laughs> know a little more about the response. He would only go so far as to say that the response will be very strong and it won't be good for, this is in the on-the-record version, it won't be good for any side. I'm not entirely sure. I suspect he doesn't know himself what the response will be. There must be a menu of options in Beijing and still being considered from a more harsher response to a more conciliatory response to something that they con concern might trigger a spiral of responses. I suspect it's going to be more on the softer side. It's very obvious mm -hmm. that China does not want and does not need a full-blown trade war. But the thing is, Katie, this is only the first chapter in the story. That's why I've been so interested in this story, because it's ongoing. On June 23rd, the EU is going to approve a new mechanism to re restrict and limit outward investment from Europe to the rest of the world. But everyone will tell you in Brussels, this is about restricting outward investment from Europe to China. So that will be the hmm. second chapter. Things are getting really quite tense when it comes to EU-China relations. Do you think there is likely to be much credence given in Beijing to the idea that these are not really sanctions, that this is about restricting the activities of these specific eight countries, eight companies, rather than targeting Chinese companies in a more general sense? I don't think so. Economically, they can see that maybe the impact will be limited. But this is great power politics. And I think China, just as the EU or the US really, or India for that matter, Great powers cannot take these blows. They have to respond. This is a rule, whether you like it or not, whether we think we could have a better global system than this, that great powers cannot take direct blows. without. It's a question of national prestige. It's a question of the balance of power. It's a question in a way of economic deterrence, that if you don't respond, you're opening up your flanks to get more of these measures in the future. And it does work to some extent. If you respond harshly, then next time around, the other blocks are going to think twice. So I think that's really the explanation here. It's not about economic substance. It's about geopolitics and relations between great powers. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
From the New Statesman comes audio long reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. The expensive house that sucked up a lifetime's wages became the savings account, the pension, the inheritance. That wealth is now beginning to dissolve. Featuring writing from our authors, including Will Dunn on the Great Housing Con, Why the Coming Crash Will Rewrite the Economy, Sophie McBain on what's behind the surge in adult ADHD diagnoses. It's not pure coincidence that ADHD diagnoses have risen alongside the internet's attention economy, a vast infrastructure that has been designed to capture and monetize people's focus. And Carl Uwe Knausgaard on why the novel still matters. The poet Rainer Maria Rilke once wrote that music could lift him up. Of course, there's nothing remarkable about that. Only he then added, and put me down somewhere else. I recognise that quote so well, especially when it comes to literature. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman, wherever you get your podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. To some extent, we've been here before in 2021 with the yeah. reciprocal sanctions between China and the EU, which has led to the shelving slash deep freezing of the comprehensive agreement on investment, which is arguably against what Beijing is really trying to achieve, but yet it didn't seem able to do otherwise than to immediately hit back with sanctions and quite provocative sanctions, including against members of parliament. You think lessons may have been learned from that with with this, as you set out, the sort of medium-term goal in mind of creating a division between right. Europe and the United States. If Beijing is harsh in its response here, that could do some of Washington's work for I it. I think so. I think I don't see anyone on the EU side that regrets what happened in 2021. I think the Chinese side very clearly regrets. They thought they reacted too brutally. It was a mistake. They come very close to accepting it was a mistake. I heard from three sources in Brussels that China is willing to remove those sanctions in order to get the guy moving again. 
to remove the sanctions against the EU that they approved in 2021 without asking the EU to remove its own sanctions with which the process started. That's an incredible mm. move by China that I never expected. So I think out of that event uh, process in 2021, the EU doesn't regret it. I think China actually deeply regrets it. And that leads me to think that this time around, the response, which I think is inevitable, will be much more surgical and with a certain concern to communicate to the EU that we're responding as softly as we can. We mm -hmm. understand that your sanctions are not as harsh as they could be. We get that. We're not going to respond harshly as well. So that's my prediction for next week. But then we get to June and the process reopens again. Where do you see this heading based on, I know you've done a lot of reporting in the corridors of Brussels lately, to the extent that you can share it, what are attitudes to where this is heading in the medium and longer term? Look, it's very exciting and very unpredictable, Katie. As I look at the world today, there's some variables that are pretty much fixed. Relations between the US and China are not going to change significantly. India's position is not going to change significantly. I think Russia is on a path that is pretty easy to predict. It's not going to come back to the Western fold and so on and so forth. I think that the greatest level of unpredictability is actually when it comes to EU-China relations, lots of divisions inside Europe. And you can either get a model of Cold War II with two blocks, very clearly demarca demarcated and on a confrontational path, or you could actually have something quite different from Cold War or one where Europe, I mean, I think the idea of Europe as a kind of bridge and connecting link between China and the US is not entirely implausible. Depends on how things evolve. A lot of uncertainty here and certainly one of the biggest stories for the next five years. Nothing is determined yet. I can tell you one thing, that I see a huge difference between Washington and Brussels, that people in Brussels listen and talk to the Chinese side and the two sides understand each other. And there's an ongoing dialogue, lots of meetings going on, and they do understand each other. Very different from Washington that you know well. Right. I mean, there's a real difficulty at the moment just getting right. meaningful dialogue at, at a high level. When you talked about divisions in, inside Europe there, I wonder if you could just unpack that a little bit to give us a sense of who are the kind of key right. players here and what is the spectrum of opinion? I can quote a EU official that actually uses the word spectrum and he calls it the spectrum from Vilnius to Budapest. So we've got Vilnius, Lithuania, foreign minister is as hawkish or more hawkish than the hawks in Washington, but very aligned mm -hmm. with Washington. And then you've got Budapest that was resisting the sanctions. Now I hear heard today that Budapest lifted its objections and I understood that Budapest likes to throw those objections out there as a way to communicate to Beijing that they tried, they made a genuine effort, and, and they are concerned about the Chinese sensibilities, but they don't take that to the end of actually blocking the measures. I, I suspect Hungary in the end thinks that they will reserve their veto to things involving directly the Hungarian national interest. They're not going to spend their capital with Chinese uh, national interest, but they communicate that in different ways to Beijing, that they are to some extent on their side. So this is the spectrum from uh, a genuine hawk, a sort of European Tim Cotton, to, uh, to, to a, a friend of Beijing. It's a huge spectrum, right? Probably larger in the range of views that you have on Russia. Is there also a spectrum in terms of views of 
the US and how the US is handling relations with China and how stable or otherwise the political system here looks? Yeah, I think when it comes to the US, there's many people along this spectrum that have many reservations about the American position on China. Here, it's not just Budapest. It's a lot of people in Germany and France. You saw Macron's interview. It's a lot of people in Brussels. The EU official that I discussed this at length, he expressed many reservations about Washington's position, he even put it in a very philosophical way, saying that we in Europe understand that empires rise and they fall, and this is all the game of empire, and we accept that. We don't have this anxiety that the Americans have about being replaced at the top of the world order. We want to create a system that is balanced and where there are rules applicable to everyone. That's our goal. We're not fighting for EU primacy the way the U.S. is fighting for EU primacy. So you see there's even philosophical differences, rather deep differences between the Europeans and the Americans on this. We're seeing this very concerted diplomatic push by China in oh, wow. Europe, of which Ambassador Fu is at the leading edge. But would you say that there is there are similar efforts from the US or is China perhaps doing more and more actively at the moment to cultivate opinion? No, the US is doing a lot. The US was very distracted in the Obama years up until Trump, completely distracted and uninvolved. And that's why you got things like this grouping of Central and Eastern European countries working together with China that we called back then the 16 plus one. You had countries like Romania, where the U.S. has so much leverage, they were working very closely with China and welcoming Huawei and so on. Once the U.S. woke up, many of these countries suddenly became very aligned with the American position, like Romania and Baltic countries. And to think back to those years, Vilnius and Warsaw were welcoming Chinese dignitaries, they were signing deals, they were creating the 16 plus one. Once the U.S. called them back to reason, let us put it that way, they did return to, to a more transatlantic approach. And these days, the U.S. is much more involved. But what's happening, a, a U.S. expert, a think tanker, told me, and I think it's a great way to look at it. What's happening so far is that you have collected low-hanging fruit on transatlantic cooperation. There are things where everyone agrees on that we shouldn't be exporting particularly sensitive dual-use goods to China. So there it's easy. But now we're reaching the point where all the low-hanging fruit on transatlantic cooperation has been collected. And it's going to become much more difficult from now on, because this is where the disagreements I was talking about start to appear. Right. And are there also concerns there, as we are functionally already really in, in an election cycle here in the US as we head towards 2024 and what looks at the moment to be possibly a rematch with Trump and Biden? How is that viewed from Brussels? People are starting to wake up to this. I've actually been in a round of conferences, been speaking in many panels, and I'd like to bring up brought this question up four or five times over the past two weeks of what happens if Trump wins? Because I can see very easily a scenario where Trump tries to get a deal with Russia that involves concessions mm -hmm. of Ukrainian territory. And then you get into a really new situation where it's countries like Poland and the Czech Republic. The last time around, they seem to like Trump. This time around, I can see them feeling deeply betrayed by the US. And then what happens? It's a real question. Uh, Ukraine is gonna turn to Europe and say, now it's up to you to keep us fighting, to keep us in the fight. We don't wanna sign this agreement that Trump has there. And can you support us sufficiently that we'll be able to say no to Trump? Can you imagine? This is gonna be, I think, the real Ukraine crisis if it happens, but I give this 
a quite a high level of probability, actually, at least even odds, because I can see Trump winning. And he's on the record saying that this is what he wants to do. And Ron DeSantis is on the record saying something similar. I asked General John Allen in Bratislava a few days ago what he thought about this. And he's, he hates Trump publicly. But so on, on Trump, he agrees with me. He thinks that Ron DeSantis, you can still convince him. I don't think so, because we now get news that Elbridge Colby is advising Ron DeSantis on this. Elbridge Colby has been pushing for reduction of support for Ukraine. So we're heading to, I think, unless Biden wins, we're heading for a real crisis that people are starting to realize in European circles. In politics, until he gets to one year from a particular event, you're not worried about it. But now we're getting to that point. Last question, as I know we've taken up enough of your time already, but you also asked Ambassador Fu about the distinction that Ursula von der Leyen and others have begun to make between de-risking and decoupling, and whether China sees any meaningful difference between the two. What was his response to that? Right, because the word in Brussels is that this circulates a lot and it's quite reliable, it comes from different sources, is that Xi Jinping didn't like the distinction, but he's a suspicious guy and he can see that and things are not promising. And he can see that when he say, we're going to eliminate risks. And the risks are essentially two, that we're exporting sensitive material to China that China can use, either for its technological development or military development. And then second, that we are becoming dependent on China for certain imports of critical materials, solar panels, other things. So it's uh, things we export to China that we shouldn't be exporting and things that we import that we should have other other sources of supply so that we're not dependent on China. These are the two kinds of risks. And the risking would mean eliminating these risks, but still having normal economic relations with China. But of course, I think the Chinese realize that if you're very serious about eliminating these two kinds of risks, you're going to eliminate the most interesting parts of West China trade. Yeah, you're going to still be importing. You don't longer import t-shirts from China anyway. That may be risks about importing autos, cars. People are going to say there's a lot of data in the new auto software. I think the Chinese are suspicious about this distinction. They're concerned that there won't be much of a distinction between this, the risking and decoupling. If you're very serious about eliminating every risk in your trade relationship, you might end up with the most important, significant parts of trade being eliminated and cut off. But the ambassador was, and I think reflects his style, was a bit more cautious and more moderate on this. He wants to see where it's going. And so he said that it's up to the EU to explain what the difference is between the risking and decoupling. And he hopes that the risking is going to be quite limited in its scope. Maybe people in Beijing are unhappy about this, but given what's available, it's better to have something like the risking that you can try to keep within strict limits than the old language of decoupling that seemed unlimited in its scope. So I think they're suspicious, but ultimately they're going to try to use this distinction and try to use it for their diplomacy and their conversations, pushing the Europeans into a very limited concept of de-risking. People in Europe like de-risking because it's compatible with the Vilnius approach and the Budapest approach. The Hungarian foreign minister signed the the statements from the foreign ministers on de-risking. And the next day he went to Beijing and he signed some contracts with Huawei. So for him, clearly signing contracts with Huawei is compatible with de-risking. And for others in Vilnius, de-risking is the same as decoupling. 
So you see, it's a very vague term, and that's maybe why people like it. Yeah, that's a brilliant diplomatic solution. <laughs> Bruno Massage, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.